0: Do me a favor and find a Bible if you can. We've got them in baskets down by your feet. And if you can, find your way to John chapter 19. And in the Bibles that we have here, that's on page 880. Page 880. So we're going to spend some time tonight looking at the Word and looking at the the story of the crucifixion, and we're going to draw some lessons from it. But let me read with you. Let me go ahead and read, and you follow along with your eyes. We'll also put the verses up on the screen, uh, but but I want to read this and uh, spend a few moments just allowing God's Word to uh, have its place in our service. John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask right now that you would use this time to help us think about the crucifixion and all that means for us. And it is so significant that we could never exhaust what it, what it means, but, but we want to spend some time just thinking clearly about what you've done how much you love us that you sent your son to die in our place. And, and Lord, would you help us during this time to prepare our hearts for not only tonight, but also for Sunday and for every day. God, could we be a gospel people who recognize what you accomplished for us on the cross? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to look at five lessons that we can learn from the crucifixion. The first one is that Jesus is king. If you're tracking with the story, Pilate has a notice prepared. If you look at verse nineteen, Pilate has a, a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read Jesus of Nazareth the King of the Jews. He had a a, a sign that was fashioned, and this was pretty custom according to all that I've read, but they, they would carry this with them to the place of the execution. So after being tried and found guilty, the, the notice would be fashioned, and then they would have to bring it with them. Once they got to this place of execution, they would then take that sign and put it on the crucifix itself, and it would be then a public declaration of what this individual is guilty for. And so the, the back story is that the Jews hated this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and there was a, a, an arrest and then an interrogation. And if you just look back at the previous chapter, the big question is, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you really who you claim to be? And Jesus indicates as much. He said, for this reason, I was born. It's for this reason. And he said, Pilate then says, so you are a king then? And Jesus begins to indicate that he is a king, but that his kingship is different, that it's otherworldly that if it were of this earth, that his subjects would fight to prevent his arrest. But as it is, he goes to this cross. And so, though Pilate, after interrogating him, goes, I can't find anything in this man worthy of condemnation, worthy of the death penalty. Nonetheless, the the Jews keep pressing the issue because they are so hostile toward him. But here's what's ironic. As that placard is placed on the crucifixion, as it's placed there above him, it is indicating the, the realest thing about him. He is the king of the Jews. He is the one who is long-awaited, the Davidic guy, the Davidic king. He is the one that the Jews should have been anticipating, and here he is, and they now are executing him. But on that sign indicates that true status, that Jesus is the king, and he is no ordinary king. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's not just the king of of a tribe that we would have to, if we wanted to get to know him, we'd have to go there to that location and find him. He is a king, and his kingship extends to the very ends of the earth, which is funny then because as that sign is being posted, it is transcribed into multiple languages. Look with me at the verse there where it describes that. And verse, well, verses 20 and 22 talk about how the, how the Jews, even though that's posted there, they're, they're hostile about that. In fact, uh, look at it here. It said, so many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. They are hostile that this individual is claiming this status. And, and they're calling that blasphemy. They're saying this guy is not who he is saying he is. When in fact, that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the king and he's the king to the ends of the earth. Again, the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It was written so that anybody who's wandering by who is literate, if they can read in these different languages, they, ha- they would have a trade language, they'd have a common language. So it's written in all these different languages so that if you could read and you were to wander by this place of the execution, you could read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, now here's what's interesting about that. Translating this reality is something that the church should do because it's true. Jesus is the king of the Jews and that has implications to the very ends of the earth. That He's the king of the Jews and that matters to all peoples. That's why we're here tonight, because that message of the kingship of Jesus Christ has crossed all kinds of cultural barriers, and has crossed all kinds of geographical terrain, and it has arrived here, and we know Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he is the king of the world. And we want as many people as possible to know that truth, and we will do what's necessary then to make that message clear and accessible. And that's exactly what we see happening here, even at the crucifixion, that he is a missionary king. So we exist as a church. I mean, we meet in an auditorium of a high school. Why do we do that? Why do we set up in order to hold church in a high school auditorium? We exist because we believe that the kingship of Jesus is something that everyone should have an opportunity to know. And if they're not landing in other churches tonight and this weekend or during any ordinary Sunday, then we want to be in a place that is accessible to them so that his name could be lifted high. Jesus is a king. That's the first lesson that we learn here. The second lesson that we learn is that Jesus fulfills God's promised plan. What is happening here is not some chaotic thing that is spiraling out of control. What is happening here is Jesus is fulfilling all that God intended when God made his promises to his people. So if you're looking at the story, there's a theme that recurs over and over again where it's describing John's narrating and he says, this happened and here's why, in order to fulfill what scripture had said. In other words, God is in command in this moment. God is orchestrating things to bring about the fulfillment of his plan, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for Our salvation. Let's look at a couple examples here. Look with me at verse 24. As they're they're dividing up his clothes, and they get to his undergarment, and it is um, seamless. It's woven from top to bottom. And so verse 24, they say, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So, this is what the soldiers did. How is it possible that, that this, these things can happen, these little details can happen, and, and John can insert a comment and go, this is happening according to the scriptures. This is a fulfillment of what God had promised. It's quoting Psalm 22, a psalm that David wrote hundreds of years previously, a psalm where he's talking about the difficulties that he's going through, and he's speaking about different things, and he's really pointing forward to this reality, to Jesus Christ and what Jesus is going to do for his people. And, And so John is making this incredible comment, these things are happening to fulfill the plan that God has. This is not God wringing his hands going, I can't believe they're going to do this to my son. This is God orchestrating a salvation for us. And so every detail in this text and in this event point us to acknowledge God's goodness and his grace and his determination to save sinners like us. Later, verse 28, it says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So even what's happening as he's on the cross, as he's thinking about what's happening in this moment, he, he has in his mind these different passages of Scripture, and he has in his mind that he is fulfilling what God wants for him to do. And when he sees that everything had now been finished, what does he say from the cross? He says, it is finished. That is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God has done something that is complete and final. God has done something that is sufficient. God has done something that is incredible. So Jesus speaks from the cross. It is finished. And that's really good news for people like us because we are anxious people. How can we live in this world? How can we live in a way that makes God happy? How can we do what we need to do? I mean, we, we do church every single week and there are times where I think to myself, man, I'm not cut out to do this. I don't, I don't have it in me to do everything that's required to pull this stuff off. But Jesus reminds us The way of salvation is to trust in his completed work. It is finished. That is good news. Because what Jesus is saying from the cross is, I've done most of it, but now I need you guys to get on board and and finish the task. I've done most of the work for you guys, but there's some more things that need to be done for this thing to be accomplished. Jesus is able to say with integrity, it is finished. This This is good news because every other religion that I'm familiar with has a prescription of things that you need to do to be a good individual to follow that religious adherence to go after what they're saying is the way of goodness and what people ought to be doing and every other religion has a prescription for you do this stuff do it in this way have these different activities it's all spelled d o there's a lot of activity that you need to do in order to be right with this world and christianity speaks into that and says, no, it's not spelled D-O, it is spelled D-O-N-E. It is done. Jesus is able to say, it is finished. When he looks around and sees that it is all completed, it is is all happening according to God's plan, he's able to say, it is finished. Look 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 at what it says next. Then he bowed his head, this is verse 30, and he gave up his spirit. So he, gives him, he recognizes his work on the cross is complete and he surrenders his own soul. He gives up his spirit. And John 10 speaks into this earlier in the same book. Jesus speaks about his authority to do this in John 10, 10 verses 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. So when he's dying on the cross, when he's saying it it is finished, when he's bowing his head and giving up his spirit, it is his authority, it is by his authority that he is finishing the work for which he was sent. And that's why when we sing, it was my sin that held him there. He, He could have flexed his sovereignty in that moment and hopped right off of that cross, but what was he doing in that moment? He was, he was working salvation for me and for you. He, he was doing what was necessary for us to be made right with God, and all of that was according to the promised plan of God. So over and over again, we read in this story that everything is happening to fulfill what God had promised in his word. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And that's one of the great joys of my life, to help people see that, that all of the scriptures point to him. They point to what he was willing to do in his life and ministry, in his death and resurrection. They all point to him. So we we are learning then that Jesus fulfills God's promised plan. And so when the writer to Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about it in this way in verse 2. He said, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're wondering what is happening at the crucifixion, Jesus is going there with joy set before him, and he is enduring the difficulties and the pain of the excruciating torture and the death, but he is doing it because he is very purposeful. He's bringing about salvation to the very ends of the earth, and he is now ascended at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's the second lesson. Jesus fulfills God's promised plan. The cross is central to Christianity. That Jesus went to the cross for us is a centerpiece of what we believe. Here's the third lesson. Jesus reveals, in this narrative of the crucifixion, Jesus reveals the true family of God. Jesus tells us about the true family of God. If you look at verses 25 to 27, if you look down from the cross in front of him, there's family members and friends. And he's looking down at them now, and he's going to interact with them. So look with me at verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, it sounds like Jesus is making final arrangements. When Ash and I went to Kenya, when Reese was just a little baby, we were doing a mission trip, and we decided we wanted to go back to Kenya and visit the kids that we were sponsoring and the ministry we've been a part of for a long, long time. And we thought to ourselves, man, if we're going to leave Reese behind then we need to draw up a will. We need to find uh, somebody who, who could manage that for us, somebody who could fulfill that for us, because it's the responsible thing to do. God forbid anything were to happen, but if something did happen, we would want to set up our family to, to be able to navigate that experience. And so we did that. That's, that's, um, that's just kindness, and that's care for those who will go on, will be your survivors. And so people need to do that. And it looks like that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's making final arrangements. He's going to care for his mom. He's going to make sure that when he's gone, there's somebody there to look after her. That's true. I think that is very true. But I think there's also more going on here than that. Though it fits with his character, though that's just kind of what he does, he cares for people, and he always does what's right. I also think that right here, he is redefining family. He is showing us that as important as family is, the biological family that we have, as important as that is, he's going to give us this indication that the family of God is even more important than that. And so he's now going to say to this disciple, this beloved disciple, here's your mother. And to this mother, here is your son. He's going to make this arrangement where the, the family bonds of blood and kinship now they go beyond that. Now it's about the, the family of God are those who trust in Christ by faith, and now we begin to relate to one another in a different way. And family, obviously, it's such a big deal. Um, Harrison, my son, he was watching a show this week, and it was on Netflix. It was a Lego show, and so he's watching that, and we're getting ready. And Ash says, what are you watching? And she hears this conversation, and she goes, I don't like how they're talking. And I look and I go, I'm like, what is he watching? So I look and I go, oh yeah, he started watching that the other day. I don't like how, how these guys are talking to each other. And Harrison, he's what, three years old? And he's just very matter of fact. And he goes, he goes, the reason he talks like that, okay, so Harrison's saying, mommy and daddy, he, he talks like that because, here's his reasoning, he doesn't have a mommy or daddy who loves him. And I thought, yeah, but you, you get something. And maybe that was a part of the story, or maybe he just understands. When you don't have a mommy or a daddy who love you, it affects you. And there are a lot of us who are walking around with parental wounds because that family dynamic is such an important and such a formative reality that my three-year-old can point to it and go, this is, this is what's going on with him. He's mean, but Harrison's sympathizing with him. He talks like that because his relationship with his family isn't right. And the Bible affirms that the the Bible over and over again elevates family. Family is a beautiful God-given gift. It's a building block of society. It's so important and the Bible itself sets healthy parameters around it to protect that institution. But I believe that Jesus and the New Testament makes it very clear that as important as family is, the biological family that we have, the family of God is even more important. That's pretty crazy. I used to think it was kind of trite when people would meet each other and Christian guys would go, hey, brother, and they'd kind of grab each other and they'd go, hey, brother. And I'd go, man, that's kind of dorky. Um, but the more I read my Bible and the more I interact with the church, the more I see this is so beautiful. The family of God. The family of God is the place where we should be caring well for each other, and the New Testament builds that thing out. And I think when Jesus is making those final arrangements, he's pointing to that truth. Within here, there are mothers and grandmothers in the faith, and we need to treat them with dignity and honor. Within here, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I'd love for you to just peek around for a moment and just think about this. The people that you are sitting by are not just spectators in a church service. If, they are, if you're a believer and they're believers also, this is our family. And within this family, we ought to be able to experience the beauty of this relationship that God has given us, where we look after and care for one another, and we care deeply because we are in Christ, and he has given us his command to care for each other. So I think the third lesson here is that he redefines the family. Here's the fourth lesson. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the last two. We looked at this last week, but Jesus is the Passover lamb. If you look at verse 31, it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a very special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. In the background of this story is this big religious ceremony, a great great Sabbath, and it is called the Passover. And so everyone is getting prepared for that, and they want to. it's the day of preparation, and they want to get home to be able to roast a lamb and get their family all set, and then the next day to celebrate the salvation that God had brought as they were passed over many, many years ago and spared. And Jesus, in this story, kind of rises to the surface, and we begin to recognize the lambs, they were all just pointing to him. The lambs that needed to be sacrificed, the lambs without blemish, the lambs that they would bring out once a year and they would cover things in blood and and then they would eat the the lamb in haste. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb that was slain. And in Revelation, when John thinks about this and sees this vision in Revelation chapter 5, he sees the Lamb that was slain standing at the throne of God. And so we recognize then that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And what happens here then is, it's kind of funny, but Saturday doesn't even get any playtime in the this story. This, the Sabbath, this great Sabbath, this important day for, for, for the religious people who are observing it, it gets totally dismissed in the story. We skip over, and you see this on Sunday morning, we skip right into the Lord's Day. And so what do we do as Christians? Friday? It's a good Friday. It's a great Friday. Friday is the preparation for what God is doing for us, that salvation that he's working at the cross, the Sabbath rest that we will have, not just for a day, once a week, but, but for all of eternity, spending together with him. And so Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he redefines everything then. And that's why we celebrate him, and that's why we call today Good Friday. It is the day where he voluntarily went to the cross for us. Here's the fifth lesson that we learn, and it'll be brief, and so I'll invite the band to come. Here's, here's the fifth lesson. We must believe in him. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, as John speaks up now, he says, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John says the reason why this story is in the Bible, the reason why he's talking about it is because he is a truth teller. He saw it firsthand. And he says, here's the reason why I keep telling this story, so that you also might believe. The fifth lesson we learn is that we are here tonight because Jesus invites us to trust in him, to believe on him for our salvation. And if you've not done that before, I encourage you to do that tonight. Trust in him for salvation. He is the one who, for the joy set before him, went to the cross, enduring its, scorning its shame, enduring the hostility there, enduring the pain, and and being the one who brought about the salvation that we can experience. So believe on him and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to acknowledge the significance of the crucifixion. It can be too easy, even as Christians, to not think about what that looked like, not think about what that means for us. But Lord, tonight we are committing our time to thinking about the crucifixion and what you did for us, God. Thank you for your love that was on clear display when Jesus voluntarily stood in our place as the sacrificial lamb taking away the sins of the world for those who will trust in him and believe in him. Lord, I pray that every person in here tonight who can hear my voice would trust in him for salvation. Lord, I pray that there would be nobody going home tonight unclear of the offer that you make at the cross. That if we will look on you and believe in you, you will save us. Help us to trust that. In Jesus' name, amen.